Welcome back to Booklands and this edition of The Track. My name's Tim Morris. It's been a great summer at Brooklands. It's been full of some fantastic events, uh, including the Autumn Motorsport Day, the Double Twelve, British Marks Day and Auto Italia. But there have been plenty more as well, all enjoyed in some glorious sunshine. And the members too have had a, a brilliant year. We featured... TV personalities Charlie Borman, Tony Jardine, Tiffany Dell throughout the year. And we've had some other fantastic events including Dick Bennett, the boss of West Surrey Racing, and Matt Jones and his Silver Spitfire. Uh, some of the, the smaller events too have been really interesting. We had a fascinating talk on a local physician, Dr Gardner, by Steve McCarthy. Um, Dr Gardner was the physician for Brooklyn's racetrack in its heyday. So uh, now we go to our, our last event of the year, which was one of our designer events and featured uh, the famous designer, Peter Stevens. He begins by talking about his early days, moving on to Reliant, the Jaguar XJR15 and his time with Brabham. Well, I'll start with uh, what I'd call first influences. That's a painting by my father, and it's the Regent's Canal um, in St. John's Wood in London, and we lived in a little house just up from the canal. He, he was a spectacularly good painter, actually, but uh, having two sons, he had to take more of a proper job because there wasn't money to be made in painting at the time. So he, he actually ran a museum in the east end of London called the Geoffrey Museum. And the Geoffrey Museum had a history of furniture and household artefacts in a series of rooms. And it's probably where I became fascinated by design because Saturday mornings um, I was allowed to roam the rooms and sit down with my sketchbook and do drawings and all these. So I could sit in a Queen Anne chair and draw um, a table or something, which... Uh, he obviously influenced me with that, but so did um, this chap here. This is a fellow who you can see cardboard cut out of him down in the museum. It's Dennis Jenkinson, who was not only the continental correspondent for motorsport, but he was a bit of a motorsport enthusiast himself. And he introduced me to the fact that um, you didn't have to go in a gentle straight line in a car because he was magical at what was called Wishon with a 356 Porsche, where with jerking away at the steering wheel, you got slight understeer whilst full throttle meant that you got oversteer and it would drift around corners magically well. Anyway, so that's the kind of early stuff. So I became, not surprising, very keen on cars. And the, the first car that I bought was this 1930 M-Type MG. Uh, I sold my very nice McLean's bicycle and my mother never asked why the bicycle had gone and nor why I was walking off with a bag of tools because round the corner was the little M-type because when I got it it just smoked like a chimney because uh, and I you know had to learn as I went along but what had happened with it was that the um, the valve guides had worn and I went to a place called Toolman in South London and they put new valve guides in and they said, you know, this is a special engine with that camshaft because it was what was called, uh, I think, a double 12, which was a slightly more sporty one. Anyway, from there, 
because I was interested in the car design, I went to Royal College of Art and this was a, an Italian magazine called um, Car Styling and they came to the exhibition and two of the projects I did, they were very different from each other. I was interested in the idea of aerodynamics for two reasons really. One is that if you're going to design cars, usually it takes like three or four years before you know whether it was a good idea because people have bought them or not bought them. If you take your car to the wind tunnel, then in about an hour, you know whether it's any good or not. And I like that immediate kind of response I got from, from the wind tunnel, which meant that I was, have always been keen and involved in, um, in aerodynamics. But uh, that other was um, an off-road vehicle where, because I had at the time a 1942 Ford Jeep and I mean it was brilliant it was extremely good but you couldn't really put anything in it and I came up with this forward control idea while I was at college as well although my father was a, a curator in the museum you know it, it wasn't it wasn't a well-paid job at all and if uh, well if you needed a bicycle I had to make one and then with the motorcycle I bought what was a funny little Italian three-wheeler. I'm really sad I sawed it up because probably it would be much, <laughs> much more valuable than this thing which eventually disappeared. But it had a little engine called an Itala and it was a kind of, kind of sprint bike. The second one I did when I was at college, which was somewhat appalled the college because it had a nice little Honda 50 engine and a megaphone, which I loved the noise that it made. And I actually went to sprint events with my uncle, and he had a number of sprint bikes. The Norbser was probably the best, which was a Norton frame with the BSA. And I used to go along with him, and he encouraged me to build this, actually. And it ran on methanol, so it sounded great, and it smelt the business. And uh, it was actually quite good, because in a quarter mile, it was in about 16 and a half seconds. Probably the most obscure project, because I worked with Tom Caron at Ogle Design. And Ogle had designed the Reliant Robin, and later the Resonant Kitten, which was a four-wheeler. And Tom liked the idea, and he persuaded Reliant that we should look at 1975, so pre-Esprit, we should look at a mid-engine car. And Reliant had a cylinder head made by... BRM, of all folk, and what they did, because it had the Reliant Robin back axle, and then there was the engine, and the engine pointed forwards, so then there was the gearbox, and then a chain, and then a prop shaft back to the back axle, which was all a bit convoluted, and because there wasn't um, money, because we were doing it with Tom's money, everything was flat sheets in it, but it, it's quite fun, because from that time ago... It was, uh, it was quite original then. I mean, nothing came of it because Reliant were just unbelievably conservative, really. I mean, how Tom got them to do the scimitar, I'll never know, because they just wanted to do vans, really. Anyway, I, would say, I call this most crucial deadline because um, this is the Jaguar XJR15 that a friend of mine called Jazz Dillon, he's uh, one of the best trauma doctors in America. He's a fellow from the East End of London, actually, and he's done exceptionally well in America. His, his email is sickdoctor 
because he is a Sikh and he likes the joke that always comes with his email. Um, anyway, this was the, the, the Jaguar XJR15, and the, this had come about because the previous year, um, Tom invited me up to the NEC to look at the new sports car that Jaguar were proposing, and we went up and had a look, and it was the XJ220. And Tom was not really taken with it because it was huge, and it was supposedly with the V12, it was supposedly four-wheel drive, and Tom knew enough about engineering to know that all of those things were very unlikely to be true, and he said, we can do better than that, surely. You know, why don't we do something where we give people the, the, the feeling of what it's like to drive a Le Mans car? So this was based on, but not using the chassis of the XJR8, which was the, uh, the previous Jaguar Le Mans car, but because of the fact we wanted to get two people in it and it had to have some degree of comfort that the bonnet monocoque was entirely new but the concept of it came from the Tony Southgate car. The reason it was crucial was that in 1988 Tom had won Le Mans 24 hours for the first time with the Jaguar and he thought he was going to do well in 89 and so he said when I come back from winning Le Mans the second time I want to drive the car. So we had just a year to go from drawings on a piece of paper to a car that he could drive. Unfortunately, 89 was not a successful year for Jaguar at Le Mans, but he did win again in 1990, by which time this was uh, into production. And Tom loved it, actually. He was really, he was passionately involved with the whole thing. I mean, he has a funny reputation amongst folk. I never had any problem with him at all. You just knew that nobody got up earlier in the morning than Tom, whether it was a race car or a race event or anything else. So he was pretty darn sharp. Uh, he used to read the rules with a very large magnifying glass. Now, most amazing opportunity, I call this, because um, and this came about in a strange way that uh, I had been um, working as a freelance designer after I had... Uh, the pre-Jaguar, pre, um, but after Lotus. And I read in Autosport on a Thursday morning that Brabham had a new sponsor. And so, as the way you do when you're younger, I just phoned up Brabham and I said, can I speak to Mr. Ecclestone, please? And the girl at the desk said, yeah, sure, of course you can. I'll put you through. And he said, yes, what do you want? And I said, well, I see you've got a new sponsor, so I think you want a new graphic scheme for the car and new colours and everything else. And he said, can you be down here by 12? And I said, well, absolutely, yes. You know, so uh, I, I luckily lived at that time in North London, so I uh, scuttled down to Brabham, and Bernie came out to meet me, and he said, right, I've got a bit of a problem here. He said, bit of, I've got Nicky Lauder here, and he's looking at the car, and he hates it. He said, so come and see what you think. And I went into the workshop, and there was the... Palmerlap was the new sponsor. And this thing was like a fairground ride. It had every colour from orange and yellow and green and blue and silver and gold and white and black. And it was just hideous. And Nicky Lauder was stomping around it. And are we allowed swearing in here? <laughs> Go. Nicky said, Bernie, he said, there ain't no way I'm ever going to drive a car looks like like this. It's simple. And Bernie said, oh, that's fine. Peter Stevens is here. He's coming up with some new ideas for tomorrow. 
and uh, which was a bit uh, gulp. <laughs> uh, so I, yeah, worked quite a bit of the night and the following morning, and Lauda was back to sea, and I did the very simple. At that time, it still had the Alpha engine, so where the white is, it was red, with just the white and blue on it, and it was very simple, and Lauda said, okay, that's a deal, get him to do the overalls. Yeah. Oh, and the truck. Oh, and this and that. So that's really how I started working with, with Bernard at, at Brabham. And it was terrific because he gave me really a free hand. And when we had the period of refueling the cars and they'd bought a lot of uh, beer barrels. In fact, Bruce McIntosh might well remember who's back there. They'd bought some beer barrels to pressurize and put the fuel into so they could just blast the fuel into the car. And I said to Bernie, well, those have got to be blue. You've got to have blue anodized. Yeah. And uh, again, Bruce will remember, the way Brabham was is that there weren't complete walls between all the different departments. And so Bernie could stand there and he'd shout out, Herbie, come here! And you'd hear these little heels click, 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 click down the corridor and Herbie would come in and he'd say, all these barrels, they've got to be blue. Anything else should be blue. You know? I said, probably, well, this and that. Right, we'll do that. Okay, Herbie, get that done. And that was kind of straightforward way that, that Bernard tended to work. <laughs> Which was nice. I mean, it was good and I stayed until uh, things got rather sad there and Bernie had lost interest by that time and was more keen on Foca and they went back to some weird colours which had nothing to do with me. The birds fly a lot better than we do. See how they wheel and bank and fly? Perfect. And all in one. Wings, body, tail, all in one. Someday, I'm going to build a plane that will be just like a bird.
tiring, always stretching up for something that's just out of reach. But I'll get it. After all, what I want isn't as easy as all that. Got to do 400 miles an hour. Turn on a sixpence, climb 10,000 feet in a few minutes. Dive at 500 without the wings coming off. Carry eight machine guns. service broadcasting uh, with their track spitfire now not a lot to do with peter stevens and car design but this is harking back to uh, matt jones and his silver spitfire uh, that he built himself and flew it around the world it was a very uh, an emotional evening because it was a, a pretty tough uh, flight for him so now back to uh, peter stevens who uh, talks us through his most famous creation mclaren f1 so when i say best group to group of mates I worked with. This was McLaren because whilst I was at Lotus in the... And I was getting to feel that Lotus probably within GM didn't have all the future and in fact it took years and years before they did another car. And because I'd met Gordon Murray when I was uh, working with Bernie at Brabham, he phoned me up actually and he said that he was looking for a designer and did I have anybody I thought might be good at working on a car that they were going to do. And I, we met, actually, and at a pub, and we had a few beers, at the end of which I said, well, it's me, actually, you know, I'm not going to suggest somebody else. And he said, oh, well, kind of, all right. But he did say, but of course, you realise it's going to be my car. Yeah, and I said, well, yeah, let's see what happens anyway. <laughs> yeah, and we, I mean, we went through a number of different things. I, I treated it very seriously as a proper design project. It was interesting because when I got there, the idea to begin with was that it should be a single-seater, you know, and the word going around was that, oh, Ron thinks it should be a single-seater. And because not everybody there was in love with Ron, they said, but Ron would say that because he doesn't have any friends. But, <laughs> which, I mean, it, it, it wasn't actually true, but it was... There was a, a sort of certain movement for that kind of thing there. But um, it, it was actually a pretty darn quick project. It was, um, I think, about from, from 89 to 92 when we launched it. It was a totally foreign business to everybody at McLaren because when I cynically said to them at the time, well, you only build four cars and they cost £7 million each because if you divided 
the budget at the time for the Formula One team and the fact they did just four cars, that was sort of, you know, I said, well, it, you know, a road car isn't like that, you know, it's a different thing and you've got to comply with it. Oh, we know about getting round rules. No, you, you, <laughs> it doesn't work like that when it comes to a road car. And so uh, it was introducing them to the idea of all the testing and homologation and type approval that you had to do. And even things like the mirrors, which at that point I wasn't drawing, and somebody had asked me about the mirrors on the, the pillars, which should have been a really good idea, but because the regulations weren't written for a car with a central seat, <laughs> that it, the regulations give you a required vision line from the seat where you are, and so neither left nor the right mirror fitted with the vision line, so we had to do the... Um, the, the VW Sirocco ones, which, which are what, on the car, that we did. We didn't do many prototypes. Um, and the, the, the big surprise, well, the number of surprises to them were, there are noise, a thing called a drive-by noise test. And because everybody, to a degree, cheats with a drive-by noise test, you have to machine down the tires to the minimum so they don't make noise you have to, if you've got any sense, you take all the gears out of the gearbox because the test is done in second gear. And so you just leave first and second gear so there's less noise there. And then you put really heavy grease in the, um, the rear drive shaft joints and you wind the brakes off so that you don't get it because the noise is so critical. And part of that also is that um, it has to not give off any noxious emissions which means that you mustn't polish the car before you go for that test because it captures all the air around the car. And it's it, and it, it funny, this was all a new language completely because you can't cheat those things, you know, because there is an authority who do them. So that, that bit was really interesting, actually. I, I enjoyed that. And the, there were only about eight or nine of us in the sort of design and engineering bit, you know, and we're, we're still good mates, actually. And um, we, we still talk about the fact that when we were doing the project, we, we, didn't, we didn't know what would happen with it. We didn't know that it, we hadn't a clue that nowadays, if you want to buy one at auction, it would be between 20 and 25 million, and that would have been a mystery. All we were doing is trying to make the best job we could of that particular car. And only yesterday I was talking with Steve Randall, who did all the, the suspension and NVH work on it. Because at one point in a meeting, uh, when there was this high level enthusiasm for the car, and um, Steve said, you do realize if you're on a German autobahn and you're going 200 miles an hour, and a truck pulls out to overtake another one quarter of a mile ahead, you'll hit it. And they said, no, no, nonsense. And Steve said, no, you know, that's not, that's mathematics, you know. It's a simple mathematic thing. You will hit it, you know, which is partly why we wanted to make it so safe in the case of an accident and things, because, you know, that's just maths and that's how it works. We trusted each other tremendously with this, you know, and everybody respected everybody else's his ability with it. But what we couldn't trust was the customers, you know, and <laughs> unfortunately, you know, and this is a bit unfortunate. I mean, there is no doubt that when you've got, you know, 620 horsepower and a car that doesn't weigh more than a ton, 
uh, and it's wet, you know, or in Rowan Atkinson's case, and it generally was a diesel spill, you know, however clever you are, you aren't going to hold on to it. But I, what I would say is what you can trust are your friends. And I've just got a little bit of video here. And it, it's my friend, anybody. And he's at the um, VW test track where he took a, an F1 to do maximum speed. And by the time he did this, I had left McLaren. And when he turned up there, he phoned me at lunchtime and he said... It doesn't feel to be good, he said. When I get to 200 mile an hour, he said, it's kind of all over the road a bit and it just doesn't feel nice. You know, and because I'd done the wind tunnel testing, I said, well, tell me what ride height, tell me what this and that you've got with the car. And I, I tell this story because it, it's kind of when you have a bit of a grown-up moment in your life, actually, and I tell this to students particularly. And... So I said, well, you need to do this with the ride height and you need to do that with the rear springs and dampers. And he said, oh, that'd be all right then. I said, yeah, that'd be fine. He said, all right, I'll give you a call later. And when I put the phone down, I thought, you know, and he's one of my best mates, I've just said to him, you know, sitting at home, that the car is now fine to do 240 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah, and it is a bit of a grown-up moment and I actually waited a long while to the evening before he phoned me, actually. But um, this is a bit of film that um, one of the chaps just took this little camera and a voice recording, and so it should be. On the banking at the far end, 215. This is kilometres an hour. 230. 240, 270, 300, 391. It will not go anymore than 391. <laughs> but anyway, 391's quite fast, isn't it? Brooklyn's news. The works on the clubhouse are all nearly complete, and we hope that it'll be ready in time for Christmas this year. The uh, talk season has now finished. We uh, won't be having one in December, but we'll be back on uh, January the 19th with the racing driver Mike Wilds. And uh, the programme has been published right up to September now and uh, features many uh, interesting subjects, including uh, Britain's V-Bombers, which is nearly sold out already, Gordon Bennett and uh, TV personality Louise Goodman. The museum's uh, famous New Year's Day meeting is on again this year and it's for pre-1993 cars and bikes or pre-booked clubs. So uh, just go to the website brookmansmuseum.com and you'll find all the details on all the talks and the museum events there. And it just remains uh, to wish you all a happy Christmas and a great New Year. And if you're looking for one of those uh, last-minute Christmas presents, why not think about a Brooklyn's membership? Thanks for listening. Mm.